All right, church, how are we doing today? Anybody slip in the parking lot? Oh, I totally almost ate it so hard. It's like a, a nice rink over there. Uh, how many of you guys enjoyed the snow? Wow, there's more of you than I thought. I do have a confession to make, though. I think Indiana snowstorms are embarrassing, okay? Uh, you guys talked it up like we were all going to die, and I got like four inches in my backyard, right? So uh, I am excited. I have not been out to play in it yet, but I'm going to turn into a polar bear when I'm done here this morning. I'm going to go roll around and get snowy, all right? So I'm excited. Uh, this morning, uh, like I said, uh, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm grateful you're spending your morning with us. Honestly, there's far more people in the room right now than I thought there was going to be. So it's been a while since I've been up here. Giddy up. <laughs> here we go. All right. Uh, if you're joining us from home, thank you for checking us out, man. I am grateful, uh, again, that I get to um, do this, that I get to speak uh, with you this morning, that we get to worship together, that we get to celebrate things like what's happening at the women's home, uh, and that later on we get to take communion together. All right. So this morning we are going to begin our study in the book of Ephesians. All right. This is a six-chapter, like 20-minute read. Okay? This isn't uh, like three years ago when we went through Exodus for like a year and a half. Um, it's only six chapters, but we'll still probably be there for like 30 weeks. Um, just warning you. So we're going to be looking at this book over the next, I don't know how long. Um, but I think it's incredibly important that we actually look at this book and we set up the context before we jump in and just start reading through it together. All right? And so uh, while the book of Ephesians is incredibly deep doctrine, right, there's a ton of it, a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of, honestly, just groundbreaking, kind of hefty, this is who God is, this is who you are in him, this is how you should live, there's a ton in this six-chapter book. But we need to keep in mind that while the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us, okay? While the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. And so like every other book that is in the Bible, right, it was written for somebody other than us. And the book of Ephesians in particular was written to a particular church in a particular point in history for a particular reason. Okay, and we need to learn some of this stuff and get some of the background and the context before we start jumping in. You know, if we started reading just verse 1, but we weren't taking into account what was happening in their church and in their society, what challenges they were facing, what is happening, honestly, globally at that point in history, how the gospel is spreading, we would be reading this and just missing so much. And so this morning, we're actually going to open our series in Ephesians by reading in the book of Acts, right? It's kind of, we're going to study Ephesians, turn to Acts, all right? Now, uh, it's been a while since I've been up here. It's been like six months. Um, so we're going to go through like three chapters in Acts, and you're going to eat lunch at like 4.30, okay? I've already decided I'm pulling a Brad, and we're going to get out when we get out. So, um, giddy up. All right. Now, by looking at these three particular chapters, and I'll tell you, we're going to start in Acts 18. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to start flipping there. We're going to look at these three chapters in Acts, and what we're going to see is Paul uh, actually make his way to Ephesus. We're going to learn about his experiences there, and we're going to learn about some of the things that the church was facing. And what we're going to learn is that the letter to the Ephesians is primarily a survival manual to a struggling new church in a very hostile environment. Okay, This is a 
missionary, just survival manual for this new church in a very hostile environment. A man by the name of Christopher J.H. Wright, he wrote a book called The Mission of God. And in that he said, every passage in the Bible must be read in context of the mission that God is on in the world. That is, God is demonstrating to all people in the world that he is the only God that is worthy of worship and he is the only God who can save. And so if you take any passage of the Bible out of that missional context, you're going to misinterpret it. And that's what people do all the time, right? But people do this with Ephesians. They just turn it into a book of doctrine rather than a missionary manual. And I've I've seen this. I mean, I've been involved in the church for a very, very long time, and I've seen far too many people treat the Bible like it's a magic eight ball, right? And they just ask a question and kind of shake it and hope that their answer shakes out. And so uh, you've got teenage girls asking about the cute boy in second period, and if they're, uh, they're gonna, gonna date at some point, and they just start flipping through the Bible and looking for answers, and they stumble on John 16, 24, and it says, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Yeah, buddy, it's happening. Right? You got the dude that's trying to make the football team, and he's like, God, am I going to make the football team? And he starts flipping through, and he lands in Philippians, and he's like, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, I'm not even just going to make the team. Like, he's going to make me jacked, right? We start reading with our own context what scriptures have to say. But if we take any passage of the Bible out of the missional context of God, you are going to misinterpret it. And so even this morning as we're walking through Acts and we're looking what is taking place, right? God is on a mission to make sure people know that he is the only God worth worshiping. And at the same time, he is the only God who saves, all right? So my hope is that as we're working through Acts, you're going to see this. I mean, we were in Exodus for, I don't know, three decades, right? Two years ago. And <laughs> my math makes sense, right? Over and over and over again, we saw God attacking all these other gods and saying, I am the only God that deserves to be worshipped. I am the God who saves. And we see this over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And we're going to continue to see this in Acts, all right? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Here's a little background on Ephesus. It was the leading city in the richest region of the Roman Empire. They were the fourth or fifth largest city in the entire empire, right? This wasn't Shelbyville. <laughs> this was a massive metropolis. It was a port city. Uh, so you had this right on a major body of water, and you had people that would come and trade, and they would distribute and sell their goods all throughout the land, and that all came in through Ephesus. Because of this, it was very diverse. It was very multi-ethnic. You had people from all over the world who would come here to live, to work, to trade, and it created a lot of racial and religious tension as these people all lived besides each other. Ephesus was an economic mix. Historians will say that you had very, very rich and very, very poor living in very close proximity to each other, and that causes some big issues. It was an extremely spiritual city. There were over 50 different gods who had temples in Ephesus. And as these people went to church, just looked a little different. The largest temple in Ephesus was dedicated to the goddess Artemis, right? And her temple, uh, we've got a picture of the temple of Artemis. This thing was four times larger than the Parthenon, right? So if you've taken history and you've learned about Rome and some of the structures in there, uh, you would see that 
That's a pretty big building, right? And inside of it was a meteorite that fell from the sky that they carved into the goddess uh, Artemis. Artemis was seen as the protector of the city. And she was the one that gave prosperity to the city. And so you had all of these people who worshipped this god that fell from the sky, who protected their city and blessed them with lots of money. There was a lot of spiritualism and occult activity in Ephesus. So there was a lot of good and evil spirits that you were having to kind of jockey, and there were certain behaviors and things that you had to do to try and keep things uh, on your side, right? There was things you had to eat and not eat, and things to smoke and not smoke, and crystals, and things to burn, and practices, and all of these things to keep the gods happy. Ephesus was also one of the most intellectual cities in all of history. They actually had the largest library in the Roman Empire, and this is uh, what it looks like today. Obviously not a lot of books in there, but uh, at one point that had to have been an insanely beautiful facility just packed with scrolls and all sorts of literature. And so the stories that we're going to look at today take place in this city with these people in these situations. And this is what Paul ends up writing the book of Ephesians about four and two. You see, the book of Acts was about the spread of Christianity, and a couple years ago we taught through Acts, and we called that series Wildfire, because that's what happened with the gospel, that it spread like a wildfire all throughout the world. And so in verse 24, we see as this wildfire is spreading, we're going to see Christianity enter Ephesus. Chapter 18, verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus So here's the deal. The first person that came in preaching Christ in Ephesus was not actually Paul. It was a man by the name of Apollos. He was a Jewish convert who had heard of Christ, believed in Christ, had a lot of good things to say about Christ, but was not well educated in Christ. And so he showed up and he started preaching. And he was, it says that he was very eloquent. He was good with words. He knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. And so he uh, showed up and he began teaching And he was passionate about it, and so he would get up and he would start speaking, and there was a couple at one of the the talks that he gave, and they were sitting there, their names were Aquila and Priscilla, and they were a part of one of Paul's churches in a different community. They had settled in Ephesus, and they kind of had like a small group going where they were teaching people about Jesus, and so Apollos is up, and he's preaching, and he's just spitting fire, right? And they're like, yes, yes, hold up, you're a little off on that, wait, 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 wait. So they invited Apollos into their home church and just kind of continued to educate them. But even uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they were kind of limited in their knowledge. But it says that Apollos was really, really passionate about this. And so he wanted to go out and continue to preach the gospel. And so he ends up leaving Ephesus. And after Apollos leaves, this is when Paul shows up in Acts chapter 19. So Paul shows up and he starts doing kind of his Paul thing, right? He just starts dropping just Jesus bombs just everywhere, right? Preaching the gospel, preaching the word. And as he's preaching, people are like, hold up. What is this Holy Spirit thing that you're talking about? He's like, what do you mean you don't know what the Holy Spirit is? And they're like, no, I've never heard of him. And so he talks about the Holy Spirit and people actually receive the Holy Spirit and they start doing crazy miracles all around Ephesus. And so for three months, Paul is in uh, some of these churches and he's speaking and he's in the synagogues and he's talking about Jesus and who Jesus is and what kind of power Jesus has and people are coming to faith like crazy. 
and they end up running into a little bit of uh, resistance from folks in Ephesus. And so instead of doing this all the time in the synagogues, they moved to this civic center, basically. And so for two years, Paul shows up on his post-lunch siesta, right? You're working all morning, you eat lunch, you take a break, and then you get back to work a little bit later in the day when it cools down. They're all together, and he's sharing Jesus and preaching Jesus, and he does this for two years. It says in Acts 19.10, it says that this continued for two years so that all of the residents in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Man, two years, that's a long time. I mean, he's running this community Bible study on his work break. Verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them, right? So the church does what the church does best. They start a new ministry called the hanky ministry. And they start bringing cloth to Paul and they start rubbing it on him. I swear if you do that to me, it's gonna be a bad day, okay? They start rubbing it on Paul and they're taking it to people that are sick or possessed and the folks that are afflicted are actually being healed. Just because this material touched Paul, there was so much power and the Holy Spirit was working so fervently through him that literally fabric that touched him was healing people. And this kind of became all the rage. I mean, it sounds silly, but in verse 14, we're introduced to the seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a metal band. So we've got the seven sons of Sceva, and they just got done watching the latest season of Cobra Kai, okay? And they decide they want in on this action. And so they go up to a house, they're like, we're going to drop a little Miyagi-Do on this dude, So they knock on the door, and they're like, hey, in the name of Jesus, of whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And this guy just stares back at him, and he's like, hmm, Jesus I've heard of. Paul's trending on Twitter, I've heard of him, but who are you? And it says... Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay, hear me on this. You get into a fight and you come out naked, it's a bad day. (laughs) It's a bad day, right? These boys weren't just wounded physically. They were wounded emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. Like this isn't just put a a stake on a black eye kind of wounded. This is like you got your pants beat off you, you're crying for your mommy, okay? This is why in chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul's like, hey, if you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, here's what you got to be wearing. These are the tools that you need. This is how you've been equipped. If you're going to go into situations like this, come prepped and come ready because these dudes are no joke. Verse 17. It says, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor many of whom who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. So you've got all these believers that maybe believed in other gods or uh, practiced dark arts or did something. They came to faith in Christ, and so they showed up to a big citywide bonfire with all their Harry Potter books and their Twilight books, and they chucked them in. 
50,000 drachmas. Historians say that's between six and eight million dollars. That's a lot of books, especially at that point in history. Verse 20, it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Guys, the gospel was transforming the city of Ephesus. These people that had practiced sorcery and these other religions, they're turning to Christ not only for salvation, but it's now having an impact on the city economically. You see, Ephesus was the gateway to Asia, right? You had people that would show up at this port town to trade stuff. You have people from all over the world that is showing up. You have this huge temple to Artemis. So you had people coming from all over to come to temple so that they could worship Artemis. This was a massive economic deal. Literally, the bank of Ephesus was in the temple of Artemis, right? If we believe that she protects us and we believe that she provides for us, we're going to keep our money there. And so the temple of Artemis kind of turns into like the Disney world of their day. Right? You got Uber drivers, and you got Airbnb, and you got all sorts of restaurants serving food, and you got all these people standing outside selling their Artemis ears and all these little trinkets that people can take back home. Right? So you got these little God makers making all of these little take-home idols and souvenirs. Well, if now you've got people that are throwing away all of this false God stuff and turn for the gospel, you now have affected the amount of money that these people are making. And so the gospel wasn't just affecting hearts when it came to salvation, but it was affecting wallets and not just for the people who believed. I love this, verse 23, it says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way, all right, the way. It's what early followers of Jesus were known as because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so early church followers went by the way. That's what people knew them as. Oh, you're a part of the way. There arose a great disturbance about the way. Verse 24. A silversmith by the name of Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, we have received a good income from this business and you can see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led us astray. A large number of people here in Ephesus, and in particular, uh, the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by our human hands are no gods at all. And there's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Right, so Demetrius, the silversmith, takes it upon himself to stand up and defend the good name of Artemis and to stand up as the union leader for all these other people. He's like, here's the deal. If we let Paul continue doing what he's doing, you're going to lose your jobs and we're going to lose our temple and we're going to lose everything we got. The gospel was having such a massive impact on their city that their economic order was disrupted. I think a, probably a, a common day version of this would be going to Las Vegas and every casino shutting down and every hotel being turned into uh, housing for orphans and widows. 
Like that's the magnitude of what is happening here in Ephesus. Like this is a massive disruption. And so Demetrius gets everyone so riled up that they start this citywide riot. And people throughout the city are chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And more and more folks start joining in. They don't even know what they're joining in on. They just want to get rowdy, right? So you got 20 plus thousand people uh, just screaming at the top of their lungs and they make their way to an amphitheater. All right. Now, in Ephesus, I showed you a couple buildings. They had an amphitheater. Uh, that's it today. Like, you can go there, you can be there. Seats 25,000 people. That holds more people than where the Pacers play. Ephesus was a grand city. They would have Olympic-esque events that happened in that amphitheater. And so Demetrius, this silversmith, gets the city so caught up in craziness that they all end up at the amphitheater in hopes that they can deal with Paul. And Paul being Paul's like, I'd do it. And everybody's like, no, bro, you are gonna stay outside. Like, you're gonna die, right? And he's like, oh, I, got, I don't care, I'll go do it. They're like, no, you're gonna stay outside. So that amphitheater is packed with people. And it says that a man by the name of Alexander gets pushed up front, he's actually a, a Jew, not even tied to any of this, but he gets up and is like, hold up guys, we need to calm down. And when they realize he's Jewish and not a fan of Artemis, they're like, bro, we're not even gonna listen to you. And they all just start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. That's a rally, man. Eventually a city clerk gets up and is like, all right, here's the deal. If you wanna deal with Paul, you're gonna have to do it in a legal way. These are the courts, these are the laws, here's how it's gonna be done. If you're having business issues, deal with us here. 100% of politician gets up and is just like, calm your pants, right? Eventually, all of them calm down and they disperse. So all this craziness gets riled up and then it gets dispersed. While this is going on, kind of is brought to Paul's attention, he might wanna to leave town for a little bit, right? So Paul ends up leaving and goes to a couple other communities on his missionary journey, he starts doing ministry in those. And eventually he comes back to Ephesus. All right, so we're gonna to jump to Acts chapter 20, and in verse 22, we're gonna see that Paul is meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church, right? There's enough believers, the church is together, they're organized enough that they have leaders in place. These are referred to as elders. And Paul gets them together and he's basically saying, here's the deal, I'm about to head out for good. Like, I'm not just leaving and then coming back. Like, when I'm gone, I'm gone, all right? So here's my instruction to you. Verse 22. It says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, right? What is God's mission in the world? That folks would see him as the only God worth worship and seeing him as the God who saves. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Like, peace out, you're not gonna see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul's like, I'm leaving, and I'm going to Jerusalem, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that the Holy Spirit keeps telling me, bro, if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. Okay. That's his response. This life's not even about me. It's about making sure that Jesus is preached. So I don't really care what they do to me. That's not my goal. My goal is not 
my comfort. It's not keeping myself safe and secure. My goal is making Jesus known. And so he does. He goes to Jerusalem where he's met with hardship and he's imprisoned. You know, he's meeting with his leader and he's like, you know what? I'm leaving and I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Like I've shown up. I've taught you as much as I can. I've invested in you in every way that I possibly can. So from here on out, it's up to you. My hands are innocent of any of your blood. So he goes to Jerusalem. He becomes imprisoned. His last statement to these Ephesian elders, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which is brought which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Right? These are Paul's last words to them before he leaves. He's like, hold up. You guys are going to start facing attack. You remember what happened to Sceva's boys? Yeah, they got their pants beat off them. Be aware, those demons are coming back. Look out, because there are folks in your church, there's probably folks sitting in this room who are going to start twisting teaching. They're going to start pulling in some of their old belief systems, and they're going to tie it into the gospel of Jesus, and you cannot allow that. Stand guard. You see, when Satan fails on one front, he tries another, right? Right? So there was a period of time where it was demonic possession. People were constantly uh, possessed by demons, and it was creating all sorts of craziness in this community. Well, Paul shows up and starts casting them out. And Satan says, cool, if I can't do it with possession, I'll do it with temptation. If I can't do it with temptation, I'll do it with disunity. If I can't do it with disunity, I'll do it with discouragement. If I can't get you discouraged, well, I'll just make you proud. He's crafty. And Paul is aware of the spiritual forces that are at work all around Ephesus, and he's telling them, be alert. Church, be on guard. You have enemies that are scheming to destroy you. Verse 31, be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. So Paul leaves Ephesus, and exactly what the Spirit said was going to happen, happened. He gets to Jerusalem, he gets in prison, and seven years later, after this takes place, he's been in prison, seven years later, he writes the letter to the Ephesians. That's the context of the letter that we're about to study for the next forever, okay? Paul's been there. He knows what the city has faced. He knows what they've been through. He's taught them as much as he possibly can. He's encouraged them. He's told them to stand up and to be on guard. Paul came to Ephesus, and he knew what they knew about Jesus at that point, and he continued to educate them. And so when we look at the book of Ephesians, what we're going to see is that Paul cares deeply about doctrine. It's a church word cares about theology. There's another one. He cares deeply that you understand who God is and who you are in him. And so when we look at the book of Ephesians, there's going to be three chapters, one, two, and three, that are heavy, heavy doctrine. 
Here is who God is. Here is what Christ has done. Here is who you are. This is who you were. This is who you are in God. And then the last three, chapter four, five, and six, are here's how to live, right? So we got three chapters of doctrine, and the very first word of chapter four is this word, therefore, which kind of translates to, as a result, here's everything you need to know about God, who you are, what he's done for you. Therefore, here's how you live. It's the framework of this book, right? And so we have this amazing truth about Jesus and that who Jesus is and what he does and then how we're supposed to live. So here we go. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. You were separated, but now you are in Christ. You used to be foreigners, but now you're citizens in his kingdom. You were in darkness, but now you are the light of the world. You have been chosen. You have been adopted. You have been redeemed by Jesus. You have been sealed by the Spirit. You have been given resurrection power. You have been given eyes to see, and you have been created for good works. Now, because of that, go, and here is how you pray. Here is how you should be unified. Here is how new creation people live. This is how you imitate God. This is how you do marriage. This is how you raise your kids. This is how you see your job and your calling. Here is how you fight. Because Paul knows Ephesus. He knows what they've been through. He knows what they're going through, and he knows the fight that they're in. The book of Ephesians is a missionary manual to a struggling church in a hostile community. And that's how we need to approach this letter. You know, this morning, if all I did was set up context for what is to come, I would be robbing you of the scripture that we walk through and what it means for us today. And so as I sat under this text and wrestled with this text and sat with it, there's a few things that really stuck out to me. And the first is this, wherever the people of God go, they change the entire climate of their city. If you read the book of Acts over and over and over again, you will see a city completely transformed because of Jesus, who he is, and the good news that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And that same good news is for Shelbyville, for Shelby County, as it was for Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and Galatia and all of these other communities that it was spread to throughout the book of Acts. Acts 19.23, right? There came about a great disturbance about the way, right? They changed their community. The message, uh, paraphrase, it says, there was a huge ruckus occurred over the way. There was a huge ruckus. Like the believers in Ephesus were changing the economics of their city. They were changing the religious norm of their city. The believers in Ephesus were changing a port town that filtered into all of the world. Guys, here's the deal. Central Indiana is known as the crossroads of America for a reason. We may not be a port city, but we affect a lot of things that happen in our country. I think far too many of us are like, man, we live in a small town. Nothing crazy is going to happen here. I think, man, we're just going to look to Chicago and L.A. and New York and D.C. and see what happens in those big cities. Here's the deal. We want to change our culture. It starts here in small town America. It does. Wherever the people of God go, they change the entire climate of their city. 
And looking at, at Paul, I think something that I, I pulled out of this was that, you know what, if we want to be involved in changing the climate of our city, we personally need to find a mission that we are so intensely personally obligated to. And that is a really awkward sentence. Wow, I'm not even speaking right here. You have to find something you are so passionate about, it becomes an obligation that you have to do it. Like if we want to change our community, we all have to find a mission that we are so personally invested in. I'm usually pretty real with you guys, so here's the deal. Uh, A year and a half ago, we had a six-year-old dropped in my house. It caused a great disturbance. And for the last year and a half, I've walked through uh, this situation with this little girl. And I've seen her um, get to visit with mom. I've seen her not get to visit with mom. I've seen uh, a million caseworkers come and go. I've had a lot of people in and out of my house. I've sat and talked to representatives who think they know what's best. Uh, I have uh, just sat for the last year and a half and watched what's going on with this little girl. And I've participated in it and I've been involved in it. And what I tell people is that when that girl moved in, she turned my wife into a mom and she made me incredibly passionate about this calling to get people involved in work. You see, churches tend to do a phenomenal job at handing out food and paying for bills and maybe helping you pay rent and meeting these emergency needs, but they continue to meet emergency needs instead of giving people long-term substance. And so if we can get people connected to work if they can find a job and stick with it, if we can give them the skills to continue to do well there, they can make money, which means they can pay for their housing, they can pay for their food, they can pay for their clothing, and they can get their kids back. I am not gonna change the foster care system. It's not my desire. But my desire is to change one life at a time in hopes that those parents will be able to fix the system by getting their kids back. Guys, we have to get so personally invested in a mission. All of us do. And I'm aware, right? Here's the deal. Uh, I opened my house. I took in a foster kid. I'm quitting my job, and I'm starting a new business. I'm aware that that is not normal for all of us. And I'm not asking that of all of you. But what I am asking is that you find something so small that you can just be insanely passionate about it and then go do that as much as you possibly can. Our church will be a different place. Our community will be a different place. I think the easiest way to do this, my youth pastor growing up, his name was John Dewey. He's now a senior pastor in Indianola, Iowa. He's had this phrase for almost as long as I've known him. He said, who's your one? Who's your one? You see, most of us think, oh, if we're going to reach the ends of the world, that means we just need to go and reach the ends of the world. What does that even mean? No, you need to find one person. One, maybe you stretch it and you do two. You find your one. Who is that one person that you're gonna get to know that doesn't know Jesus? Who's that one person that you are going to sacrifice for? Who is that one person that you are going to invest in? Who is that one person that you are gonna pray for daily? Who's that one person that you are going to serve at every opportunity that you can? Who is that one person that you are going to share Jesus with passionately? Who's your one? 
Guys, if you want to change the climate of our city, here's the deal. We bought a building. We called it the bridge. We're renting a house. We call that a transitional home. We have an offer in on a shop space. We're going to call that a shop. Those are buildings. If you guys want to change the climate of our community, it starts with you. You can't just throw a check in a box and expect the pastors here to go out and do all the work. It's not how it's going to fly. I can only put in so many hours in the week. All of our staff can only put in so many hours in the week. The way that we affect change in our community is by finding our one. It starts with all of us. Who in your life, to use Paul's language, who in your life has their blood on your hands? I'm not talking murder, but who are you so invested in? Who have you made so deeply personal to you? Because that's the way that our community will change at one life at a time. So this morning, what we're going to do to celebrate, all right, the mission of God is what? That we would see him as the only God worth worship and that we would see him as the God who saves And what we get to do this morning is we get to celebrate by taking communion. It's the opportunity for us to reflect, to remember what it is that Christ did for us. And so this morning, we get to come and we get to take the bread and we get to take the cup. And as a church family, we get to celebrate and remember that Christ was broken on the cross, that his blood was poured out for us and that he rose from the dead, defeating death. That because of him, he is worthy of our worship and that we get to be in right standing before God. We get to celebrate the mission of God today. So I'm gonna pray. And we're gonna come. We've got four stations throughout the room. Come to one of the aisles, grab your stuff, cycle around and go back to your seat. If you guys wanna come up here, you're more than welcome to. Come up here, pray as a family. Kneel at the altar. Talk to Jesus about what you've got going on. But we need to celebrate who Jesus is, what he means to us. We need to remember. And we need to ask, God, who is our one? Give me the wisdom. Who is it I need to pursue? Who is it I need to be bold with? Because our community matters. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for the book of Acts. That we get the history of how this church came to be and the way that you moved in this community. And I pray that we would read it through the lens of your mission here on earth and not through our mission or uh, what we're looking for. I pray that you would use this series in Ephesus to teach us and to empower us. I pray that you would just move. That what we learn wouldn't just sit in our head, but that it would make its way to our hearts. That it would affect change. And Father, I'm grateful for the ways that you have called us to be in our community and involved in our community. I pray that each one of us would take personal the challenge to find their one. I ask that you would give us each wisdom in who to pursue. And I ask for your boldness as we share with them. I pray that a holy disturbance would shake our community and that it would be a radically different place because of the gospel. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.